Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin. We are continuing to read at page 76 for this reading, Lecture 5th. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to, se- to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father, but by him. John 14.6 Lecture 5th We heard yesterday God's complaint and his expostulation with his people. He said in short that if they came before any judge, there were reasons sufficient to condemn their ingratitude, and that they were without excuse because they had gone after vanity and were become vain, or, in other words, that they had without a cause forsaken him, and were carried away only by their own inventions. It now follows the prophet I'm sorry, it now follows verse six. Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of draught and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through, and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof and when ye entered ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination the prophet goes on with the same subject for God adduces here no small crime against his people as they had buried his favors in oblivion indeed a redemption so wonderful was worthy of being celebrated in all ages not only by one nation but by all the nations of the earth as then the Jews had thus buried the, favor, the memory of a favor, so remarkable and valuable, their base impiety appeared evident. Had they not experienced the power and kindness of God, or had they only witnessed them in an ordinary way, their guilt might have been extenuated. But as God had from heaven made an unusual display of his power, and as his majesty had been manifested before the eyes of the people, how great was their sottishness in afterwards forgetting their God, who had openly and with such proofs made himself known to them. We now then understand what the prophet means by saying, they have not said. For God here sharply reproves the stupidity of the Jews, that they did not consider what they were under perpetual obligations to him for his great kindness in delivering them in a manner so wonderful from the land of Egypt. By saying that, they did not say, Where is Jehovah? He intimates that he was present with them and nigh with them, but
but that they were blind, and that hence they were without excuse for their ignorance, as he was not to be sought as one as, as one at a distance, or by means tedious and difficult. If then this only had come to their mind, did not God once redeem us, they could not have departed after their vanities. How then was it that their error, or rather their madness, was so great that they followed idols, even because they did not choose to make any effort or to apply their minds to seek or to inquire after God? Here then the prophet meets the objection of the hypocrites, who might have said that they had been deceived and had relapsed through ignorance, for they have ever some evasions ready at hand when they are called to an account for their sins. But lest the Jews should make any pretense of this kind, the prophet here shows that they had not been through a mistake deceived, but that they had followed after falsehood through wicked disposition. For they had willfully despised God and refused to inquire respecting him, though he was sufficiently nigh them. This passage deserves to be especially noticed, for there is nothing more common than for the ungodly, when they are proved guilty, to have recourse to this subterfuge, that they acted with good intention when they gave themselves up to their own superstitions. The prophet then takes off this mask and shows that where God is once known, his name and his glory cannot be obliterated, except through the depravity of men, and as though knowingly and willfully depart from them, from him. Hence all, apost- hence, all apostates are by this one clause condemned, that they may no more dare to make evasions, as though they have been through more mere simplicity deceived. For when the matter is examined, their malignity and ingratitude are discovered, because they deign not to inquire, where is Jehovah? And he afterwards adds what explains this sentence. I have said that other nations are not here condemned, but the Jews, who had known by clear experience that God was their father, as then God had, by many testimonies, made himself known to him, known to them, they had no pretext for their ignorance. Hence the prophet says that they did not consider where God was who brought them from the land of Egypt and made them to pass through the desert. He could not have stated this indiscriminately of all nations, but as it had been said, the words are addressed particularly to the Jews who had clearly witnessed the power of God, so that they could not have sinned except except willfully, even by extinguishing through their own malignity the light presented to them which shone before their eyes. And here also the prophet amplifies their guilt by various circumstances, for he says, not simply that they had been brought out of Egypt, but intimates that God had been their guide for 40 years, for this time is suggested by the word desert. The history was well known, hence a brief allusion was sufficient. He, at the same time, by mentioning the desert, greatly extols the glory of God. But the first thing to be observed is that the Jews were inexcusable who had not considered that their fathers had been wonderfully and in an unusual manner preserved by God's hand for forty years, that for they had no bread to eat nor water to drink. God drew water for them from a rock and satisfied them with heavenly bread, and their garments did not wear out during the whole time. We then see that all those circumstances enhanced their guilt. Then follows what I have referred to, 
The Prophet calls the desert a dry or a wasteland, a dreary land, a horrible land, a land of deadly gloom, as though he had said that the people had been preserved in the midst of death, yea, in the midst of many deaths. For man was not wont to pass through that land, nor did anyone dwell in it. Footnote. Though the general import of this verse is given, yet the version is not very accurate, I offer the following. And they have not said, Where is Jehovah, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, through a land of waste and of the pit, through a land of draught and of the shadow of death, through a land in which no man traveled, and no human being dwelt there. The word pit is used poetically, the singular for the plural and correctly rendered pits in our version. It is probably an allusion to the practice of digging pits and covering them over in order to catch wild beasts. And the word is here is used here only to express hidden dangers. The shadow of death means a barren dreariness. After land in the last line but one non English word is supplied by supplied by three MFS and by the Septuagint, though by no means in character with the with the Greek language. But the idiom of the Hebrew requires it and is no doubt the true reading. I have rendered non-English word in the last line after Blaney, human being. The five last lines are thus given by the Septuagint. Who conducted you in the wilderness, in a land unknown and inaccessible, non-English word, in a land through water, without water and barren, fruitless, in a, man, in a land through which no man passed and no son of man in, inhabited there? The word barren is rendered more literally by the adoption, non-English word, of the shadow of death. Editor. And footnote. Whence then, he says, did salvation arise to you? From what condition? Even from death itself. For what else was the desert but a horrible place where you were surrounded, not only by one kind of death, but by a hundred? Since then God brought you out of Egypt by his incredible power and fed you in a supernatural manner for forty years, what excuse can there be for so great a madness in now alienating yourselves from him? Now this passage teaches us that the more favors God confers on us, the more heinous the guilt if we forsake him, and less excusable will be our wickedness and ingratitude, especially when he has manifested his kindness to us for a long time and in various ways. He afterwards adds, and I brought you in, etc. Here Jeremiah introduces God as the speaker, for God had, as with his hand stretched forth, brought in the children of Abraham into the possession of the promised land, which they did not get, as it is said in Psalms, by their own power and by their own sword. For though they had to fight with many enemies, yet it was God that made them victorious. He could then truly say that they did not otherwise enter the land than under his guidance, inasmuch as he had opened a way and passage for them, and subdued and put to flight their enemies, that they might possess the heritage promised to them. I brought you in, he says, into the land, into Carmel. Some consider this to be the name of a place, and now doubt there was the Mount Carmel, so called on account of its great fertility. As then its name was given to it because it was so fertile, 
It was nothing strange that Jeremiah compares the land of Israel to Carmel. Some will have the preposition, non-English word, to be understood, I have brought you into a land like Carmel. But there is no need laboriously to turn in all directions the prophet's words. It is, as I think, a common noun meaning fruitful and used here to show that the Israelites have been brought by God's hand into a fertile land, for its fertility is everywhere celebrated, both in the law and in the prophets. Footnote. That the word means a fruitful field or country is evident from Isaiah 18, 16, 10. I'm sorry, Isaiah 10, 18, 16, 10, Jeremiah 4, 26. There is also a city bearing this name, situated in the tribe of Judah, and also a mountain belonging to the tribe of Manasseh. Editor. and footnote. That ye might eat its fruits and its abundance. That is, I wish you to enjoy the large and rich produce of the land. By these words, God intimates that the Israelites ought to have been induced by such allurements cordially to serve him. For by such liberal treatment... He kindly invited them to himself. The greater then the bounty of God towards the people, the greater was the indignity offered by their defection when they despised the various and abounding blessings of God. Hence he adds, And ye have polluted my land. Footnote. And ye came is left out. The same verb is a causative sense is used at the beginning of the verse rendered I brought. It would be more striking to retain the same verb and not to use but when in the latter instance, as in our version, and I caused you to come into a fruitful land to eat its fruits and its rich produce, and ye came and polluted my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The whole runs thus much better and has the conciseness of poetry, and the idea intended to be conveyed is more apparent. God caused them to come, and they came. Editor. End footnote and mine heritage have ye made an abomination as though he had said this is the reward by which my bounty towards you have been, has been compensated I indeed gave you this land but on this condition that ye serve me faithfully in it but ye have polluted it he calls it his own land as though he had said that he had so given the land to the Israelites that he remained still the lord of it as a proprietor though he granted the occupation of it to them he hence shows that they impiously abused his bounty in polluting that land which was sacred to his name. For the same purpose he calls it his heritage, as if he had said that they possessed the land by a hereditary right, and yet the heritage belonged to their father. They ought therefore to have considered that they have entered the land because it had been given to Abraham to his chil- and to his children for a heritage, for whom by God who was the fountain of this beauty... I'm sorry, for whom? By God, who is the fountain of this beauty. The more detestable then was their ingratitude when they made the heritage of God an abomination. It follows, verse 8, The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. God assails here especially the teachers and those to whom was committed the power of ruling the people. It often happens that the common people fall away 
while yet some integrity remains in the rulers. But God shows here that such was the falling away among the whole community, that priests as well as prophets and all the chief men had departed from the true worship of God and from all uprightness. Now, when Jeremiah thus rebukes the teachers and the priests and the others, he does not excuse the common people, nor extenuate the crimes which then prevailed everywhere, as we shall see from what follows. As many think that they set up a shield against God when they pretend that they are not acquainted with, no, with so much learning as to distinguish between light and darkness, but that they are guided by their rulers, the prophet, therefore does not here cast the faults of the people upon their rulers, but on the contrary, he amplifies the atrocity of their impiety, for they had, from the least to the greatest, rejected God and his law. We now then understand the design of the prophet. Footnote. It appears that the prophet had already condemned the people in the foregoing portion of this chapter. In chapter 1, verse 18, we find the different classes thus arranged, kings and princes, priests, the people of the land. At the beginning of this chapter, he addresses the people, the whole community, and here he names the priests and the pastors, that is, in the state, including kings and princes. Thus he reverses the order according to the common usage of scripture, but to these are added here prophets because they were the spiritual pastors, as kings and, pieces, and princes were the civil. Editor. and footnote. We may learn from this passage how unwise and foolish are they who think that they are in part excusable when they can say that they have proceeded in their simplicity and have been drawn into error by the faults of others. For it appears evident that the whole community was in a hopeless state when God gave up the priests and rulers unto a reprobate mind. And there is no doubt but that the people had provoked God's vengeance when every order, civil as well as religious, was thus corrupt. God then visited the people with deserved punishment when he blinded the priests, the prophets, and the rulers. Hence, Jeremiah now says that the priests did not inquire where Jehovah was, and he adds, and they who keep the law, etc. The verb tafesh means to keep, to lay, hold on, and sometimes to cover, <coughs> so that there may be here a twofold meaning, that the priests kept the law, or, or that they had shut it up, or, or that they had it shut up as it were under their keeping. It would not, however, be in harmony with the passage to suppose that the law was suppressed by them. For God, by way of concession, speaks here honorably of them, though he thereby shows that they were the more the wicked, as they had no care for their office. He says then that they were the keepers of his law, not that they really kept the law, as though a genuine zeal for it prevailed among them, but because they professed this. They indeed wished to be thought the keepers of the law, who possessed the hidden treasure of celestial truth, for they wished to be consulted as though they were the organs of God's Spirit. Since then they boasted that they kept and preserved the law. The prophet now more sharply rebukes them, because they knew not God himself. And Paul seems to have taken from this place what he says in the second chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Thou who hast the form of the law, thou who preachest against adultery, committest adultery, and thou who condemnest idols art thyself, guilty of sacrilege. 
For thou keepest the law, retest in it, blessed in God, and with thee is understanding and knowledge. Romans 2.22 I'm sorry, Romans 2.20-22 Paul in these words detects the wickedness of hypocrites, for the more detestable they were, as they were thus inflated with false glory, they profaned the name of God, while they pretended to be his heralds, and as it were his prophets. We now see that this second clause refers to the priests and that they are called the keepers of the law because they were so appointed according to what we read in Malachi. Footnote. Perhaps no better word can express the verbs here used in that of our version, handle, that they handle the law, that is, explain and teach it. To handle the harp is to play on it, Genesis 4.21. To handle war is to carry it on. Numbers 31:27. To handle the ore is to apply is to ply with it. Ezekiel 27:29. And to handle the bow is either to use it or to know how to use it. Amos 2:15. They who handled the law were evidently those who undertook to explain and to teach it to others. To lay hold on seems to be the primary meaning of the verb, and that either for a good or bad purpose. The scribes, observed Scott, who, under, who undertook to expound the scriptures, did not understand them. Editor. End footnote. He afterwards adds, The pastors have dealt treacherously with God. We may apply this to the counselors of the king as well as to the governors of cities. The prophet, I have no doubt, included all those who possessed authority to rule the people of God. For kings and their counselors, as well as prophets, are in, called, in common called pastors. And he says that the prophets prophesied by Baal. The name of prophet is sacred, but Jeremiah in this place, as in other places, calls those prophets contrary to the real fact, who were nothing but impostors. For God had taken from them all the light of divine truth, but as they were held still in esteem by the people, as though they were prophets, the prophet concedes this title to them, derived from their office and vocation. We do the same in the present day. We call these we call those bishops and prelates and primates and fathers who under the papacy boast that they possess the pastoral office, and yet we know that some of them are wolves and some are dumb dogs. We concede to them these titles in which they took pride, and yet a twofold condemnation impends over their heads as they thus impiously and with sacrilegious audacity claim for themselves sacred titles and deprive God of the honor rightly due to him. So then Jeremiah, speaking of the prophets, does not does now point out those as impostors who at that time wickedly deceived the people. He says that they prophesied by Baal. They ascribed more authority to idols than to the true God. The name of Baal, we know, was then commonly known. The prophets often called idols Balaam in a plural number, but when Baal signifies a patron, when the prophets speak either of Baal in a singular number or of Balaam in the plural, they mean the inferior gods, who had then been heaped together by the Jews as though God was not content with his own power alone, but had need of associates and helpers, according to what is done at this day by those under the papacy, who confess that there is but one true God, and yet they ascribe nothing more to him than to their own idols which they invent for themselves at their pleasure. 
The same vice then prevailed among the Jews, and indeed among all heathen nations, for it was the plain and real confession of all that there is but one supreme being, and yet they had gods without number, and these were all called Balaam. When, therefore, the prophet says here that the teachers were ministers of Baal, he sets this name in opposition to the only true God, as though he had said that the truth was corrupted by them, because they passed over its limits and did not acquiesce in the pure doctrine of the law, but mingled with it corruptions derived from all quarters, even from those many gods which heathen nations had invented for themselves. Nor does the prophet insist on a name. For it may have been that these false teachers pretended to profess the name of the eternal God, though falsely. But God is no sophist. There is then no reason for the papists to think that they are at this day unlike those ancient impostors, because they profess the name of the only true God. It has always been so. Satan has not begun for the first time at this day to transform himself into the angel of light, but all his teachers in all ages have presented their poison, even all their errors and fallacies, in a golden cup. Though then these prophets boasted that they were sent from above, and confidently affirmed that they were the servants of the God of Abraham, it was yet all an empty profession, for they mingled with the truth those corruptions which they had derived from the ungodly errors of heathen nations. It follows, and after those who do not profit have they gone. Footnote. Some say that idols are referred to, and others, as Calvin, think that the false gods are intended. The meaning is the same, only the context seems more favorable to the latter idea. The Septuagint has a, has a neuter adjective. After what is profitless have they gone? The verb for profit is plural, and if we take non-English word only as a negative, both the antecedent and relative are omitted that non-English word here, and in verse 11, and in other places, is evidently a noun or a pronoun signifying none or nothing. And like ned, none, in Welsh, it is either singular or plural, according to the verb in connection with it. It precedes here a verb in the plural number, and in verse 11 in the singular. The relative is often understood both in Hebrew and in Welsh before future verbs, and in both languages, especially when the present time or act is intended. In the present instance, both languages may be considered to be literally the same. The Hebrew, word for word, may be thus rendered in Welsh. Erl neb alessant i rodeasant, after none who profit have they walked. That is, after none who can do them good have they gone. Editor. End footnote. He again, by an implied comparison, exaggerates their sin, because they had despised him whom they had known, by so many evidences, to be their father and the author of salvation, whose infinite power they had as it were, as it were felt by their own hands. And then they followed their own inventions, that there was nothing in all their idols which could have justly allured the people of Israel. Since then they followed vain and profitless deceptions, the more heinous and inexcusable is their sin. It afterwards follows, verse 9, Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. The particle ood, yet or still, is not without weight. 
For the prophet intimates that if God had already punished the perfidy and wickedness of the people, he still retained whole his right to do so, as though he had said, Think not that you have suffered all your punishment, though I have already severely visited your fathers for their wickedness and obstinacy. For as ye proceed in the same course, and as there is no moderation for limits to your sins, I will not desist from what I have a right to do, but will punish to the last both you and your children and all succeeding generations. We now can understand what the prophet means. It is indeed usual with hypocrites foolishly to cast off all fear, especially after having been once chastised by the Lord. For they think it enough that they have suffered punishment for their sins, and they do not consider that God moderately punishes the sins of men to invite others to repentance, and that he is in such a way sharp and severe as yet to restrain himself, in order that there may be room for hope, and that they who have sinned while waiting for pardon may thus more readily and willingly return to the right way. This is what hypocrites do not consider, but they think that God on the first occasion expends all his rigor, and so they promise themselves impunity as to the future. As, for instance, when God chastises a city or a country with war, pestilence, or famine, while the evils continue, there is dread and anxiety. Most of those whom God thus afflicts sigh and groan and even howl, but as soon as some relaxation takes place, they shake off the yoke, and having no concern for their wickedness, they return again as dogs to their vomit. It is hence necessary to, to declare to hypocrites what we see to have been done here by Jeremiah, that God so visits men for their sins, that in future he ceases not to pursue the same course when he sees men so refractory as not to profit under his scourges. Still therefore, he says, this threat no doubt exasperated the minds of the nation. For as they dared to clamor against God, as we find in many places, and said that his ways were thorny, they spared not the prophets, and this we shall hereafter see. They indeed gave the prophets an odious character, and what? These prophets, they said, chatter nothing else but burdens, burdens, as though God had ever fulminated against us. It would be better to close our ears than to be continually frightened by their words. It must then have been a severe thing to the Jews when the prophet said, Still God will contend with you, but it was needful so to do. Let us then re learn from this passage that whenever God reproves us, not only in words but in reality, and reminds us of our sins, we do not so suffer for one fault as to be free for the future, that until we from the heart repent, he ever sounds in our ears these words, Still God will contend with you. And a real contention is meant. For Jeremiah speaks not of naked doctrine, but intimates that the Jews were to be led before God's tribunal, because they ceased not to provoke his wrath. Footnote. Catechur thinks that it was verbal pleading. It is as if he had said, I have argued the case with your forefathers already. Let me debate the matter a little further with you, and let your posterity also consider well what I now say. See Deuteronomy 31, 19, and 31. And so is the same word afterwards used for debating the case or pleading verse 29. Henry, Adam, Clark, and Blaney take the same view, but Scott seems to agree with Calvin. 
The verb non-English word, followed as it is here by non-English word, ever means a verbal dispute or contention. See Numbers 20.13, Nehemiah 13.11 and 17, Proverbs 35.9, Editor, and a footnote. And he declares the same thing respecting their children and the third generation. It afterwards follows, verse 11. Have the nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Here by a comparison, he amplifies the wickedness and ingratitude of his own nation, that they had surpassed in levity all heathen nations. For he says that all nations so agreed in one religion, that each nation followed what it had received from its ancestors. How then was it that the people of, of Israel was reputed and rejected? I'm sorry. How then was it that the God of Israel was repudiated and rejected by his own people? If there was such persistency and error, why did not truth secure credit among them, who had been taught by the mouth of God himself, as though they had been even in heaven? This is the drift of the prophet's meaning when he says, Go into the islands of Chittim and send into Kedar. He mentions Greece on one side and the east on the other and states apart for the whole. The Hebrews, as we have seen in Daniel, called the Greeks Chittim, though they indeed thought that the term belonged properly to the Macedonians. But the prophet no doubt included in that term not only the whole of Greece and the islands of the Mediterranean, but also the whole of Europe, so as to take in those parts the whole of France and Spain. There is indeed some difference made in the use of the word, but when taken generally, it was, in, it was understood by the Hebrews, as I have said, to include France, Spain, Germany, as well as Greece. And they called those countries islands, though distant from the sea, because they carried on no commerce with remote nations. Hence they brought the countries beyond the sea to be islands, and a prophet spoke according to what was customary. Footnote. Parkhurst doubts whether the word, non-English word, rendered islands, has ever strictly that meaning. He renders the singular non-English word a settlement, a habitation, and refers to Job 22.30, Isaiah 26, and says that the plural is, that the plural ought to be rendered habitable places and not islands, as in our version. It may be rendered here countries as by Blaney, editor, and footnote. He then bids them to pass into the islands, southward as well as northward, and then he bids them, on the other hand, to send to explore the estate of the east, Arabia, as well as India, Persia, and other countries. For under the word Kedar, he includes all the nations of the East, and as that people were more barbarous than others, he mentions them rather than the Persians or the Medes, or any other more celebrated nation, in order more fully to expose the disgraceful conduct of the Jews. Go then, or send, to all parts of the world, and see and diligently consider, see and see again, as though he had said that so great was the stupidity of, of the Jews that they could not be awakened by a single word or by one ab abomination. I'm sorry, or by one admonition. This then is the reason why he bids them carefully to inquire that the thing itself was very plain and obvious. But this careful inquiry, as I have said, 
was enforced not on account of the obscurity of the subject, but for the purpose of reproving the sottishness of that perverse nation, which must have been conscious of its gross impiety, and yet indulged itself in its own vices. Hence he says, Yea, pass over the, unto the island. And then he adds, See whether there is a thing like this. That is, such a monstrous and, exact, and, and ex, execrable thing can nowhere be found. An explanation follows. No god has changed its gods, and yet they are no gods. That is, religion among all nations continues the same, so that they do not now and then change their gods, but worship those who have been, as it were, handed down to them by their fathers. And yet, he says, there are no gods. If it had been only said that no nation has changed gods, the impiety of Israel would not have been so grievously exposed. But the prophet takes it for granted that all the nations were deceived and led away after fictitious gods, and yet remained constant in their delusions. Now God does not set this forth as a virtue. He does not mean that the constancy of the nations was worthy of praise in not departing from their own superstitions. But compared with the conduct of the chosen people, this constancy might, however, appear as laudable. We hence see no nation worship the true. I'm sorry. We hence see that the whole is to be thus read connectively. Though no nation worships the true God, yet religion remains unchangeable among them all. And yet ye have perfidiously forsaken me, and you have not forsaken a mere phantom, but your glory. He sets here the favor of God in opposition to the delusions of false gods when he says, My people have changed their own glory. For the people knew not only through the teaching of the law, but also by sure evidences that God was their glory, and yet they departed from him. It is then the same as though Jeremiah had said that all the nations would condemn the Israelites at that last day because their very persistency in error would prove the greater wickedness of the Jews inasmuch as they were apostates from the true God and from that God who had so clearly manifested to them his power. Now, if one asks whether religion has been changed by any of the nations, first we know that this principle prevailed everywhere, that there was to be no innovation of the substance of religion. And Xenophon highly, re highly commends the oracle of Apollo, that those gods were rightly worshipped who have been received by tradition from ancestors. The devil had thus bewitched all nations. No novelty can please God, but be ye content with the usual custom which has descended to you from your forefathers. This principle then was held by the Greeks and the Asiatics, and also by Europeans. It was therefore for the most part true what the prophet says here, and we know that when a comparison is made, it is enough if the illustration is for the most part, as Aristotle says, confirmed by custom and constant practice. We hence see that the charge of levity against the Jews was not unsuitably brought by Jeremiah when he said that no nation had changed its gods, but that God has, had been forsaken by his people, whose glory he was, that is, to whom he had given abundant reasons for glorying. Footnote. Their glory are by some considered to be God himself and not the glory, that is, the honor, dignity, and greatness which he bestowed on the people, as Calvin here intimates. But the latter is more consistent with what follows, which literally is, 
for nothing that profits. For the non-English word here, as in verse 8, is evidently a noun or a pronoun. The comparison here between what God gives and what false gods give, the comparison before was between God himself and the false gods. God gives glory, renders his people great and illustrious, but the false gods give nothing that profits, that really benefits, or does any good. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that since thou hast made thyself known to us in a plain in so plain a manner, not only by thy law and prophets, but also by thine only begotten Son, that the knowledge of thy truth ought to have already struck deep roots in us. O oh, grant that we may continue firm and constant in thy holy vocation, and make continual progress in it, and ever hasten forward to the goal. And do thou so humble us under thy mighty hand, that we may know that we are paternally chastised by thee, and profit under thy discipline, until being at length purified from all our vices, we shall come to enjoy that immortal life which has been made known to us by Christ, when we shall be able fully to rejoice in thee. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival's book. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by mail at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue at Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. <clears throat> we also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header, header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. 
Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.